Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marts and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is episode 89, and more importantly than that, this is the first episode of October. Right now we're in October of 2015, which obviously means it's Halloween month. And Halloween is, uh, it is far and away my favorite holiday of the year. But even more than that, it's my favorite season of the year. Uh, I, I, I love October because, you know, it's the beginning of fall and uh, there's Halloween stores popping up all over the place. And every department store has a Halloween section. And you see Halloween candy and Halloween clothes. Uh, and uh, and, and on, on cable, if you have cable, uh, there there's horror movies popping up all over the place. And uh, I can go on Pandora and I can put on the Halloween station and listen to spooky, silly Halloween songs all the time, all day, if I choose to. And uh, and I know last year on Netflix they had a whole uh, a whole Halloween section which I'll be looking for uh, you know very very soon and hopefully they do it again even if they don't you know it's not hard to find horror movies on Netflix so I absolutely love uh, I love Halloween season and so uh, you know last year it was my first year doing the podcast so so much of what I was doing was kind of just figuring things out and kind of learning on the fly and. Uh, thinking of just just trying to think of things to do to make it interesting this year you know my it's it's uh essentially this is my second year doing the podcast um it, it's still a learning experience but i feel um i feel more comfortable implementing uh you know uh, new ideas into the show and so and so i i decided for halloween specifically for october i wanted to do something special i wanted to schedule a series of shows that are all uh, couched within the theme of Halloween and by extension, you know, horror. Uh, uh, because, you know, I am I'm primarily known as a, a horror author and I grew up uh, absolutely enamored with horror movies. And so this, is a, this goes a long way towards probably explaining why I enjoy Halloween so much. So for every episode during the month of October, uh, each episode will be wrapped within the blanket of, of horror. And Halloween, and creepy and spooky, and and all things of that nature. Beginning with today, beginning with this week's episode, episode eighty nine, because my guest this week on episode eighty nine is Harrison Smith. Harrison Smith is an absolutely talented uh, horror horror filmmaker. So he, he's a writer, director, producer, but uh, but specifically uh, his his specialty, his bread and butter, his wheelhouse is making horror movies. So who better to have uh, on the first episode of October than Harrison Smith? And so like myself, uh, Harrison grew up loving horror films, which, which you know, probably similar to me being a horror writer, goes a long way towards explaining how he ended up becoming uh, a filmmaker of, uh, of horror movies. And, uh, and beyond loving horror movies, he also loved uh, Fangoria magazine. And uh, in a recent article he wrote, he talks about how 
uh, how his his mother approached him about his his subscription to Fangoria magazine and asked if uh, if he wouldn't rather have a, a subscription to Playboy magazine. And uh, when it came by, when when it came to a choice between uh, naked women and horror films, Harrison Smith chose to stick with Fangoria magazine. So you know. To say that he has an affinity and a love and an affection for horror is, uh, is, is quite frankly, an understatement. So Harrison has uh, written, directed, and produced several horror movies, and he's worked with uh, several big-name actors uh, who we'll talk about during our conversation. Uh, but currently, right now, uh, Harrison is in pre-production on his next film. It's a film called Death House, which is scheduled to be released in 2016. And so Death House, it's going to star Danny Trejo, who uh, who most of you will, will know as Machete. Uh, also Danny Trejo, he appears in uh, any number of Robert Rodriguez films. And it's also going to star Robert England, who uh, any, let's see, any, any horror fan worth their salt already knows who Robert England is. But if you don't know Robert England, then you most certainly know Freddy Krueger, which, uh, which is the character that, uh, you know... Well, I was going to say it's the character that made Robert England fam- famous, but quite frankly, I think uh, Robert England is the one who made Freddy Krueger famous. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, you know Harrison he's a he's a you know writer, director, producer. So his first two films, uh, he was the the writer and the producer. the The first one was The Fields in two thousand and eleven, which starred Cloris Leachman and Tara Reid, and his second film, which he wrote and produced was Six Degrees of Hell, which starred Corey Feldman. But his third film, that he was the the writer-producer, he was also the director. And so this was the film where he made his directorial debut. And that film was called Camp Dread, which came out in 2014 and stars Eric Roberts and Danielle Harris. Here's a short synopsis for Camp Dread. The Summer Camp Horror Trilogy was one of the most popular franchises of the 1980s. However... The decade ended, and so did director-writer Julian Barrett's career. Now Barrett has a plan to resurrect Summer Camp in a modern reboot that entails using a reality show as its template and source of fundraising. Should it succeed, Barrett would once again be at the helm. Bringing together an eclectic group of young contestants, as well as his former stars Rachel Still and John Hill, Barrett seems to have put together a surefire recipe for success. Then, people start dying. For real. And elimination takes on a whole new meaning, as Dead.TV clearly shows the slasher film has grown up. Here's the trailer for Camp Dread. Do you think you're a good child to your parents? You're all forced to come here. It was either this, jail, or rehab for almost all of you. There they are, my future stars. These are troubled kids. They need real counselors, licensed therapists. There's no such thing as reality TV. It's all plotted out down to last detail. I'm calling all the shots. All I need is an ending. I'm really here to help you guys. I feel like something's missing. Mm. The only way out is elimination. Why jam our phones? Why did somebody cancel our accounts? They're all pitted against each other. They just don't realize it yet. (laughs) Killed my brother. 
You look like him, Novak. I'm the guy out of his fucking mind. How do I know you're not the killer? How bad does it have to be when you've got to do what you're doing just to go back to the well? So that's Camp Dread, written and directed by my guest this week, Harrison Smith. Camp Dread is available on Amazon.com. You can watch it on Amazon Instant Video, or you can get yourself a copy of the DVD. If you decide to do either, uh, before you go to Amazon, please first go to the official website of this podcast, martinlestrapsshow.com, and then go to the shop page. Once you're there, at the top of the shop page, you're going to see an Amazon banner. Click that banner. It's going to take you to Amazon. And then you can do all the shopping you were otherwise going to do, including getting yourself a copy of Camp Dread, written and directed by Harrison Smith, uh, or watching it on Amazon Instant Video. But because you went through the official website of this podcast, martinlestrapshow.com, Amazon, in turn, kicks a few pennies back our way, And then we get to take those pennies and reinvest them back in the show. And it allows us to make this show as good as we can possibly make it for you, which is what we strive to do week after week after week. Uh, Now, before I get to my conversation with Harrison Smith, I just need to offer a a very brief uh, caveat going forward, which is, uh, unfortunately, through no fault of Harrison's, uh, I was having some... uh, uh, some, some 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 technical difficulties during the conversation. So there will be uh, just a handful of, of short sections where you're going to hear some audio distortions. When you hear that, don't panic. There's nothing wrong with your headphones. There's nothing wrong with your computer or your, your smartphone or ha- however you happen to be listening to the show. I, you know, I, I went through and I cleaned it up as best as I could um, I didn't want to. I didn't want to completely cut out uh, some of the some of the audio distortions, primarily because you know even though there were some distortions, you know Harrison had so much interesting stuff to talk about. I I just didn't want to lose any of it. So so even at the cost of you know sharing a few stretches where the the audio was was somewhat distorted, which for me is very disappointing because it was such a great conversation, and I only wish you could hear the whole thing. Uh, completely unencumbered. Um, by and large, you'll, you know the, the the conversation you're going to be able to hear in a in a nice, clean, crisp audio presentation. But again, unfortunately, there are going to be a couple of uh, audio distortions. So so my apologies for that. That said, uh, why don't we go ahead and move forward with my conversation with horror writer director and one hell of a nice guy, Harrison Smith. Uh, I was born in Easton, Pennsylvania, which is about 20 minutes above Allentown. And uh, I was raised in the Poconos, basically, is where I was raised. Um, I was born, uh, born, I was raised in uh, Stroudsburg, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, which is right at the gateway of the Poconos, as they like to call it. And uh, I had a great time. I had a great childhood. Uh, once once I started hitting like my preteen years, it, it got really good. <laughs> I had a blast in high school. 
I was uh, the class president and um, made a lot of movies in high school, and that's where it kind of started. I got my film camera when I was 10 years old. I got a silent Super 8 Kodak, and uh, my uncle got me that. And I started making movies and putting my brother in this dress that my mother had. And we uh, took these silent films where I, uh, I was very influenced at that time even by Benny Hill. Remember those little movies he sure. used to make and stuff? So I did all the lasers by hand. I had a light board and I had a needle and I'd scratch the lasers, you know, frame by frame, cut it with scissors and scotch tape. And I remember I saved up all this money as a kid for an editing block. And uh, so it's funny when you hear these kids today, you know, like I'm too young to be going, you know, I walked uphill both ways in snow. I, I ate dirt and we loved it uh, for me. But when you hear kids going, oh, all I have is this computer and final cut. It's like, are you kidding? <laughs> final cut was a pair of scissors and scotch tape. That was final cut for me. So I did all that. Then when the video. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? Uh, uh... How's the sound on your end? Did everything sound okay? It's breaking up. You're coming through like it's getting blocky, and, and you'll break up, and then you'll clear up. Like, right now, you're clear. Yeah, I just wanted to double-check because I'd hate to lose anything. Yeah, no, I was just saying that when the video revolution came around, then I took all those Super 8 uh, films, and I had a buddy who was – his family had a little bit more money than we did, so they got, like, one of the first – Remember when the VCRs were portable and they were broken into like two pieces and you carried one in this satchel with a video camera? <laughs> well, he said, you know, you can take all these and uh, put them on on video. So we did. And then we added sound. And I thought that was a whole new world. We got to put in music and sound. And I mean, I used to walk around with a projector and show family and friends on a wall. And now I can just up a VHS cassette and I thought that was the greatest thing. Little did I know what was coming. And uh, it was fun. Well, we ended up uh, taking that comedy short that I used to do and turning it into an hour-long TV show for the local cable channel. And my brother became kind of like this local celebrity <laughs> for a while and had a lot of fun. Plus, I found out that girls love a guy with a camera. So it was like, I was always lucky to have a pretty girlfriend, but it, it certainly helped to go to parties and stuff with my first video camera. It certainly helped. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot in terms of uh, uh, the, the technology of, well, well, just technology in general, that if you're if you're a kid today and you have a, a smartphone in your pocket, you, you, can, you, can, you could make a pretty decent looking movie. Absolutely. Where, you yeah, know. the technology that these kids are carrying around now, or even me, I mean, this is what I've got, and this can do far better than what my Super <laughs> 8 Kodak or my, I think it was $1,300, my $1,300 JVC camcorder C wow. uh, format, the C format tapes. Remember those? And I mean, the picture quality is incredible. Yeah. So, what, so when you were, so your uncle got you your first camera when you were 10 years old. Yeah. Um, did you have any aspirations before that, or was there something about actually seeing yeah. the camera that got you excited? Yeah, no, it's 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 a great question. Um, it's funny that it's Jaws's 40th anniversary mm -hmm. because that's the movie that made me want to make movies. I begged my mother when I was eight <laughs> years old to see Jaws, and my mom was like, "I'm not taking you." And then she relented. <laughs> she took me to see Jaws in a, uh, when it came out, and I mean, I I just. Watching people, you know, uh, scream and yell and then at the end applaud. That was the first movie I remember as a boy where the audience applauded at mm -hmm. the end. 
And I thought, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. This is what I want to do. I want to put stories up on a screen and make people jump and scream and yell and, and applaud and laugh. And uh, Jaws, I mean, it just got better as I got older. Jaws never left my life. Uh, in sixth grade, I wrote my own Jaws 3 novel. It did not take place in SeaWorld. But I did write Jaws 3 in 1978. So that's five years before Joe Alves wrapped it. And, um, and it was a piece of garbage, but that's okay. But I mean, that's how much Jaws was an influence on my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you with Jaws. I, I, uh, although, although when I saw Jaws, I just made me terrified to go swimming. But it inspired you to be a filmmaker, which is great. Uh, but I, I, I absolutely love Jaws. I, ha I a couple or not even a couple years ago, I'd say about a year ago, I read the, the novel for the first time. Ooh. But, but that's a movie where I could it. I was surprised when I saw that it was forty years old because it's such in my for, in my yeah. brain it's such a timeless movie. Jaws is timeless. I couldn't believe how uh, that it was, that it was even forty years old, and um, I can definitely say in terms of uh, in terms of the writing that I do, especially if I'm writing. Um, well, in, in fact, specifically, I I just recently uh, I'm in the middle of publishing a, a trilogy of vampire novels. The, the second book just came out on July fourth. But the um, there's a the 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 primary antagonist, this big scary vampire. Um, uh, Jaws was extremely influential, and in how I told the story of this uh, of this of this uh, this vampire, and and you know, especially when I was writing it, a lot of the whether it was a choice that I was making in, in terms of storytelling or just trying to figure out the best way to do something. I would always just reflect back on on Jaws and how Jaws was presented as a the scary, you know, I, I guess the yeah, antagonist in, in this movie. And I, I you know, I, I I don't want to say that I that I that I stole ideas from Jaws, but I'll say I probably borrowed some ideas from Jaws. That, no, it's okay to you say know. you stole. <laughs> I I stole with two hands uh, <laughs> some uh, some of the better ideas from from Jaws in terms of you know. Uh, I guess amongst other things, and I would love to get your thoughts on this because especially both as a fan of Jaws, but also just a, a filmmaker and a storyteller who makes horror movies. Um, you know, with, with Jaws, if you have a great white shark, you know, you're, you're already halfway there. That That's just terrifying. And yet, you know, uh, especially in the first movie, Steven Spielberg found, um, yeah, I think he found some very creative ways uh, to make it even, you know, to, to take the, the inherent, you know, uh, tear of a great white shark and make it even more terrifying and i wonder if you know as a fan of jaws if, if uh you know if you have thoughts on that or if you've drawn from it yourself sure well i mean number one your mechanical shark didn't work <laughs> that's entirely true there, there's drawing on inspiration you know <laughs> um getting yellow barrels to float in the water and and get people afraid of yellow barrels floating mm -hmm. uh yeah i i mean what i what i really love to borrow from jaws and and when you said that you you borrowed, you didn't steal. It's okay to steal because Dan O'Bannon, I remember reading, I believe it was Dan O'Bannon, uh, had a great interview where they asked him, you know, where for the influence on Alien, you know, where did you get it? And he said, well, we always pitched it as Jaws in space. <laughs> and they said, oh, so you you borrowed from Jaws. He goes, oh, I'm proud to say that I openly stole from Jaws, <laughs> is what he said. And I'm paraphrasing him, but yeah. he said, no, we stole. We, we just outright stole it. You know, that's what we did. And, uh, you know, that's sometimes what a good artist does. <laughs> so um, for Jaws, what I what I like to think that I steal from Jaws is um, 
Carl Gottlieb's uh, ability to write such an efficient screenplay. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jaws is pretty much, as I, I, I guess you can say, it is a perfect script. Every word, every line of dialogue pushes the plot forward. Uh, Jaws is just brilliant. I mean, the book is not a great book mm-hmm. at all. And I'm sure you found that out when you read it. And here comes the uh, soap opera subplot of Mrs. Brody fooling around with Hooper uh-huh. and uh, the mafia is after the mayor and they kill the Brody's cat and they <laughs> subtly threaten the Brody boy. They they threaten Sean. And I mean, really, do we why do we care about any of this? You know, like, give me the shark. <laughs> and then the three guys out on the boat. I mean, Quint, Hooper and Brody, they all hate each other. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no there's no camaraderie there at all. And that bonding scene on the Orca when they're singing and then they show their scars and the Indian, of course, the legendary Indianapolis story. Uh I mean, that's that's all the brilliance of a wonderful director and 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 also bringing out these performances and and allowing such great changes to the novel. I mean, the, the, the story that I've always read was, is that. Jaws was made a bestseller because Universal just simply went out and bought like 1.2 million copies of the book and stuck them in a warehouse and said, look at that, New York Times, number one bestseller. And everybody had to read this book. And I didn't read the book first. I saw the movie. Mm -hmm. And then when I I was like 10, I think, when I read the book and I was like, I don't like this. (laughs) Like I read the book and I got it, but I didn't want to read about, you know, Ellen Brody uh, stopping at a, at a gas station to basically take a horror bath in the bathroom to get ready for her little tryst with Hooper. And why do I, you know, why do I care about any of this? I mean, meanwhile, the shark, it should be out doing mayhem and I'm reading about love affairs and Peyton place and Amity. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's one of those times that, you know, it's just great that, a, a movie improved on the book, vastly improved mm-hmm. on the book. And, um, you know, I mean, props to Peter Benchley. I mean, he wrote a book and and he wrote a book that had a good premise, but I, I don't think it was really the, the greatest book in the world. And I don't I don't think probably Benchley, if he were alive, would really consider it a major piece of literature. Mm-hmm. But it worked. It was effective. And but Spielberg just elevated the material above what could have just been a bad monster from the C movie. Yeah. One of the things uh, and you referenced it with, with um, say like with the with the, the yellow barrels, um, is that one of the things that I absolutely and, and, and you know like you know with with you now that I have your permission I feel better that I that I that I that I wholeheartedly stole from Jaws was uh, how to how to create fear um, with with you know how to how to uh, create the illusion of the present of the presence of your monster without the monster always right. being the there monster actually being there and so uh, uh, and so this is something that I did a lot. Um, in uh, in this in this particular trilogy, because I, I didn't I didn't want the monster in in every scene, um, and in large part because you know when when he did show up, I wanted it to be special and scary, um, and that uh, the more I could uh, create his presence when he when when he wasn't there, I would almost create this larger uh, tension. So then when he did show up, um, uh, hopefully if I did my job right as a reader, when he actually physically shows up. The tear is even more amplified, yeah. and, and that's something that I absolutely uh, took from Jaws, and, and and is also as you as you mentioned, Spielberg sort of by necessity the shark just didn't work for you know uh, most of the shoot, but it worked out. I mean, and I, I wonder, and you might know this far better than I do, but I, I wonder if uh, um, if the shark was working, if he if he if yeah. he would have well, used it too. Would have had Jaws too. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, Jaws 2, you know, Swark came in. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, you know, Swark came in and, and said, look, we're, we're never going to top Jaws. So we're just going to show the shark every moment that we can. <laughs> and then you even went into overkill. I mean, did we really need to scar the shark? Did we need to have its face burned? If you're not scared of a great white shark, you got to <laughs> scar it up. I mean, I guess it's cool. But I also think that Jaws 2 is a much maligned sequel mm -hmm. that it, it, it gets a lot of shit and it really shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, Jaws 2 is a very wonderfully made film. It's it's beautifully edited by Neil Travis, who did a great job. Maybe not the job that Verna Fields did with Jaws, but I mean, Neil Travis's editing on Jaws 2 is is brilliant. And um, he did another brilliant job on Cujo, on, mm. on 1983's Cujo. But I mean, Jaws 2, you can't say is a badly made film. I mean, it's, it's production value is incredible. They mm -hmm. spent... I think at the time, my God, was it fifty million at the time on it? Was it, it really? I think it may have been. Um, I may be wrong on that. I'm sure some fanboy out there. Like, <laughs> on, go look at. I mean, I can look it up on IMDb right now. But um, it was extremely expensive, and uh, while it lacks, you know, the, the 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 human story that Jaws had, and they showed way too much of the shark. Mm -hmm. Um, Jaws 2 is still a, a good sequel. It's it's a decent film. It's a good film. And it entertained. And it, mm -hmm. and it did a good job. Uh, Jaws 3 and 4, we really can't say that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I've never really had any gripes about uh, about Jaws 2. And, um, and you might be... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're the first person I've heard say that, but, uh, but at the very least, the first person who's maybe... You know, who, who's making movies and part of the industry and sort of has a has a voice that who's maybe uh, that I've heard say that because I know as a fan I've never had really any big gripes with the with Jaws two, uh, Jaws three I was I was I was pretty young when I saw it and so I think uh, it's, it's one of those movies that as a kid I thought it was great because like Sea World that's awesome I love Sea World and it's the Jaws and everything and then of course when I got <laughs> older and watched it again I was like oh that's yeah, that's interesting. It, it makes a better memory than it does a movie. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the. That's a good example of a movie I should have stayed away from. Just yeah, let the memory, <laughs> let the memory be what it was. I, I totally had another question for you, and I and I, and I just uh, I just stepped on my own question because now I can't remember what it was. Um, it, well, hopefully I remember it. In the meantime, though, uh, along with Jaws, uh, what are some other movies uh, as a kid that? Um, that uh, that affected you, uh, your your sensibilities as a as a writer or a filmmaker, or just just your imagination at all. Um, I remember. I mean, like films that really. I mean, Godzilla, mm. uh, the nineteen fifty four Godzilla, and then all the other ones that came after. I mean, uh, they they made up a bunch of my afternoons. I really think um, major influences something like uh, James Whale's Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein, which are still brilliant motion pictures. And if if not also even better than when they were released, hmm. um, I, I'm a big fan of big monster movies. So I love those. They were great escapism for me. I'm not saying every Godzilla movie was a classic. I'm not <laughs> saying that. Uh, but sometimes they were just fun. Um, influence wise, I got to say, and, and it's probably ridiculous, but Rankin Bass's 1967 Mad Monster Party was a major influence okay. on me. And uh, in my childhood years, I love it. I still do. It's my favorite kids movie of all time. And uh, but as I got older in my teen years, uh, I would have to say Tom Holland uh, did a, a, a double for me. And that was Psycho 2. I think the screenplay is brilliant mm -hmm. for Psycho 2. And I thought Psycho 2 was a great film. 
I thought it was a great sequel. And for, you know, people to have the balls to make a sequel to Psycho, especially 20 years later, <laughs> uh-huh. 22 years later, uh, that was a lot. And I walked in absolutely expecting to hate that motion picture because I saw some pre-interviews, you know, early interviews with Anthony Perkins. And basically from the way Perkins sounded, um, it, it was going to be, you know, Friday the 13th meets Bates Motel mm. is what it was going to be. Norman comes home. He goes crazy again, dresses up his mother and kills teenagers banging in the, in the motel rooms. That's what I thought it would be. And instead, that's not what it was. If you've seen the film, then you know that it's really a kind of whodunit. It, it was really clever. It was it was well written. And, and Tom Holland's script, I thought, was just hit all the right notes. And uh, I loved it. I was 15 when I saw it. And uh, I was 15 when I saw Jaws 3 also. So talk about, you know, one great film and one really (laughs) crappy film. And then, um, in fact, Jaws 3 was so bad, I saw that for free and I wanted my money back. (laughs) That's how bad that was. Somebody should have paid me to see Jaws 3. Um, And we'll get back to Jaws in a minute on that because as awful as Jaws 3 was, I don't believe that Joe Alves set out to make a bad movie. Mm -hmm. However, Jaws the Revenge... They were out to fuck everyone on that. <laughs> there was there was no attempt to make anything good. I, I my personal opinion is Jaws: The Revenge is the worst motion picture ever made, ever. <laughs> Far worse than anything you can throw at me. I can. There is no justifying Jaws: The Revenge. And anybody out there that says no, Jaws: The Revenge was good, you're an idiot. I'm saying <laughs> right now, you don't deserve to watch movies. Your DVD player computer should be taken away from you and you should never be allowed to watch another motion picture again. And if it's your favorite movie of all time, you should be committed. (laughs) And you can say whatever you want about that. There is no justifying Jaws the Revenge. It is hands down a terrible, terrible motion picture. And in my opinion, far worse than Plan 9 from Outer Space. And I have a blog that supports everything (laughs) that I say with empirical data. It's not just opinion. This is fact. This movie sucks. Yeah. I mean, just the premise of the movie, right? You have Jaws who wants to get revenge, except the the Jaws who would want revenge was killed in the first movie. (laughs) (laughs) And so four movies later, presumably a shark who at at my my best, the the best logic I can make is that Jaws maybe had a a kid or a close friend and they passed the story down from years and years. And then the, jo- the shark finally grew up and it was like, these fuckers killed my mom. I'm going to get revenge. But it wasn't even an Amity. They went somewhere in the in the Caribbean, like found. Because I know that if my family's been decimated by a shark, the first fucking place I'm going to go to is. <laughs> yeah, that's n- never mind flying to Colorado. Right? <laughs> you could go to Colorado. You have no more shark problems. OK, but no, I think I'll go visit my son, who, by the way, is witness now two shark attacks in his lifetime and almost eaten by a great white twice in his life has now become a marine biologist because that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, so it sounds like uh, at this point in our conversation, it sounds like you were uh, tremendously uh, affected by, by horror movies as a kid. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, how, how I can answer that is, my grandmother, if you saw the movie The Fields, The Fields is about my childhood. And um, my grandmother raised me up on a diet of Boris Karloff, Bella Lugosi, Vincent Price. By the time I'm eight, nine years old, I knew who all these dudes were, <laughs> Peter Laurie, um, all of that. And uh, 
the interesting thing was, is, you know, my grandmother educated me on this and I, I saw a lot of movies that didn't necessarily have a lot of blood. They didn't have a lot of gore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were just, you know, to me, they were scary, but they were fun. And, you know, Vincent Price became, you know, uh, like a staple of, of my growing up. And I, I love the um, Roger Corman remakes or not even the remakes, the interpretations of Edgar Allan Poe material is the Raven and and all of that. And I had a blast with all of that. My grandmother, you know, taught me, well, that's fake. And they put makeup on and that's a guy with a rubber mask. And and I learned and I thought, mm-hmm. wow, people do this <laughs> like this is somebody's job. And uh, so, yeah, horror was a big big part of my life. And if you see the movie, The Fields, you'll see that very clearly. I pay very, very heavy tribute to the influence my grandmother had on me growing up. Yeah. The Fields, that was 2011. You were the, you were the producer on The Fields. Did you do anything Correct. else besides the, uh, being the producer? Uh, yes. Um, I was the writer. I wrote the script. It's based on my childhood. So by the way, I love when you get people going, oh, The Fields is based on a true story. That's bullshit. No, <laughs> I'm the guy. It happened to me. And uh, I was about maybe six or seven at the time when those events happened. It was over a two-week period. And um, basically, uh, I wrote the screenplay. It was directed by two men. It was a co-directing team, Tom Matera and David Mazzoni. And uh, Cloris Leachman starred. Tara Reid played my mother. Cloris played my grandmother. And I'll tell you right now, Cloris's interpretation of my grandmother, that's exactly how my grandmother was. Mm. She didn't play my grandmother. She channeled her from the grave. Wow, yeah. and that, and that's uh, even if, like, even if that's uh, if if working with Cloris Leachman was was all that came out of it. How cool is that? I mean, like, how, how cool oh, was she? Wonderful. I'll tell you what, man. Uh, not just a nice person and a good heart to work with. Uh, just she's so eclectic. She she plays. She could be a concert pianist. She can play piano beautifully. She speaks like five languages, including Japanese, fluently. Um, She was, uh, I believe, one of the uh, uh, participants in in Miss America. I believe she was. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. She's an author. Uh, She blew out her knee skiing in Vail, Colorado, just only a couple months before she came to shoot with me. She was 80-some at the time. She's And she's so well-read and, and she's so well-versed. One of the most intelligent people I've ever met. And most of all, just one of the sweetest people. I mean, you couldn't ask for somebody better to work with. What a wonderful, wonderful woman. That's a, you know, I, I, uh, it occurs to me, I, I, it's a question that I've had most of my life as a film fan, is that uh, I know, like, I, I, I know without question the role of a producer on a film is extremely important, but I have such a vague understanding of what a producer actually does, but I know it's important, but I don't know what they do. So so, it's important. So, so because, so, so you've done it more than once. Uh, I produce four motion pictures, dude. And uh, I can tell you what it is. And that is on this level of filmmaking, you're doing everything. hmm. You know, you, you are doing everything. You are, Writing up the agreements. Sometimes you're casting. I've cast all four of my motion pictures. I was the casting director. Wow. Uh, you find the money. I found the money for all four of my motion pictures. Uh, you write the scripts. You get your line producers. You get your crew. You negotiate. You uh, secure the locations. Yeah, that that's producing. Wow. And if anybody tells you that producing is easy, they're <laughs> not doing it right. Uh 
uh, well, I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I, I wonder if you've seen um, I, I, I uh, Wag the Dog. Oh, I love Wag the Dog. I, I love that one. And of course, uh, that's probably that movie is uh, uh, in terms of me trying to sort of get answers to that question, what a producer does. I feel like that, you know, uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman's uh, performance in that movie uh, it's it's wonderful. It's hilarious, and I love how much he's he almost has this um, uh, sort of a chip on his shoulder as you know, uh, as people like myself not not truly understanding what what a producer does. Uh, now I, I suspect if there's if there's let, let's say there's somebody listening to this, they're they're an aspiring filmmaker, and they just now heard you say you know that you found the money. What a question they might very well have is. How do, where do you even begin? I, I've got an idea. I've got a script. I've got my friends. We're talented. How how would how would we even begin to start that journey of finding money to to make a film? So what might you tell somebody like that? First of all, you got to have a good script. Hmm. That's it. Don't 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 come to money people with I have an idea or it's going to be Star Wars meets you know the Matrix. Nobody cares about your mashup ideas. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and, and a lot of people have created this, this crazy belief. And also these um, found footage movies mm-hmm. have created this myth that it's just as simple as going out, uh, getting a video camera, making a movie, and you'll make $245 million at the box office. <laughs> um, I'm here to tell you that that's all bullshit. Matt Damon and, and uh, Ben Affleck, I'm sure, would also reiterate that it wasn't just as easy as they decided not to party for a month and they wrote Goodwill Hunting, <laughs> and you know, a year later they're collecting Oscars. No, it wasn't like that, and everybody in that hall. So, um, making Blair Witch Project, for example, what most people don't realize is, yeah, they went out, they shot it at Sanchez, they did all that, they did shoot it for sixty grand. But it got picked up at an art festival. Uh, they ended up putting about a million dollars into the film, mm. clean up the sound, reshot some footage, fix that picture up. And then they did about probably $30 million, $40 million worth of marketing on it. And that's how you get a hit. If you, I mean, look, Paranormal Activity is one of the greatest examples of this, mm-hmm. where, you know, it was, it was, yes, it was made for 15 here, all this into it when it was finally picked up. Uh, you know, Spielberg, I believe, for a while was briefly involved with it. Uh, when Paramount puts 40, 50 million into the marketing of it, they figure out we'll roll the dice. You know, 40, 50 million, if we lose that, all right. But if we don't and lightning strikes again, we, and they did, it, it paid off. I mean, what, 400 million at the box office this thing made? Uh, but what they don't tell you is, is, you know, they sunk a lot of money into that as well, too. But the, the message that goes out to these filmmakers is basically you can have a video camera and Final Cut Pro and you're a filmmaker. No, you're not. It's no different than a reviewer. A reviewer is not somebody who gets on YouTube and holds up, you know, I don't have anything here, but holds up a DVD and says, hey, everybody, I'm going to review Halloween 3. You're not a reviewer, okay? (laughs) You're somebody that has access to some pretty cool technology, but what credentials do you have in film? Uh, what what do you know? I mean, other than you like movies, uh, there's one guy on on YouTube, for example, that sits under a sheet and reviews movies, and all he does <laughs> is regurgitate the plot, throws in some snarky dick comments, and uh, then and by the way, he didn't even review my movie. I'm just saying I I saw him <laughs> do this with a movie, and basically uh, thinks he's funny, and you know you're going to get some views or comments. So 
to my advice to anybody out there is have a damn good script. That's one. Don't don't think you're just going to go out and get a bunch of your stupid friends and stand in the woods and make Blair Witch 56. That's not going to happen. You're not going to. And and also don't make a zombie movie. Okay. <laughs> zombie movies are tired. The, the, the genre needs a break. There's zombie fatigue. And I know this because I made one. Okay. And although it's done well, we got in just under the wire on that one. Right now, unless you're making World War Z Part Two, mm-hmm. uh, your little tiny fifteen thousand dollars zombie movie isn't going to go anywhere. Okay, and I've seen some good ones. I mean, I, I've become friends with Bianca Brady of uh, Wormwood, and Wormwood is doing well. But even I'm sure the producers will tell you that yeah, we, we'd like it to do better. It's doing well, and it's a great film. It's a phenomenal movie, uh, and, and in fact, it's the zombie movie I wish I made. Mm. But um, my movie is different. My zombie film is way different than what they did. They did a Mad Max meets zombies movie and and pulled it off on on no money. But they will even tell you it's not you know they're they're not reaping in millions of dollars here. So you have to start with a good script, and then you have to have a marketing plan. You have to know what what is out there, what's selling, and you know I, I hate to say this too. Try to get a celebrity in it. The first thing, I mean, the market is so flooded right now. And look, I know, like It Follows doesn't really have any major stars and it's doing well. And I get that. But they also have a good marketing campaign and there's a lot of other things behind that. It's not, but it is a good film. So I'm not taking away from that. And yes, these things do happen. But the first thing any distributor asks when you walk through that door is, who's in it? Who you got? And because there's so much material out there right now, distributors have become choosy of what they're going to take. So my message is good script, have a plan. The guy that writes the check or the woman that writes the check, they don't want to hear that this has been your dream since you were six years old. This is an American Idol. Okay. (laughs) Somebody wants to know, what are you doing with my money? Mm -hmm. How am I going to get my money back? Now, a buddy of mine, or he's an acquaintance of mine, got $50,000 from a, a, a dentist who wanted to make a horror movie. And I told this guy, I said, listen, don't do what your plan is. His plan is I'm going to make a zombie movie. You're not on $50,000. <laughs> and I said, look, take that 50 grand, do one of two things, use it to secure a star and then raise more money off that and make a $700,000 zombie film or a million dollar zombie film and get it sold to a big distributor. You will do nothing with this money except spend this man's money and you're not going to make it. He spent the man's money. The film is terrible. Mm. And uh, this guy, this dentist is never going to see his money again. Uh, that's you terrible. Know, he might as well just might have taken it and set it on fire. Well, and I was actually going to ask you about that. Like, are there uh, like in, in terms of finding money for a movie, uh, are there people who just uh, maybe like that, like they, what they do is they they have money and they they not not like they invest in films or is it just finding people like a dentist who maybe has some extra money and wants to get involved like how, how does it go? You know what? It could go either way. There there are people out there that have money into film and um, but a lot of them you know they go through hedge funds they go through you know brokers they go through people to vet projects they if they're going to put a million or even five hundred thousand or whatever into a movie. They're likely, I mean, if, if that's what they specifically want to do, because anybody with money knows the worst place you can put your money is in a movie, okay? 
the the return on the the chance of a return is volatile. I always tell any investor, never invest more than what you're willing to lose. Mm-hmm. Okay? You sometimes you're better off taking your million dollars and going down to Atlantic City <laughs> and going into the casino and seeing what you hit. You might come out with a little bit more than what you started with. Um, it, a lot of things can depend on a movie. And in fact, uh, with my money guy, Jeffrey Trainer on Zombie Killers, uh, Elephant's Graveyard, I spent an hour trying to talk this man out of making a zombie movie. <laughs> an hour. And he, he said, I want to make a zombie movie. I'm like, no, you don't. He's like, yes, I do. And I kept saying, no, you do not. And this went on for about an hour until finally he said, Harrison, I'm, I'm going to make this movie with or without you. And he goes, but I want to make it with you. And I thought, well, I, I do like to eat. <laughs> I, I do like paying my bills. So, um, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll do this. So I wrote what I felt was a really, really, you know, upstanding script in the genre uh, to give it the best possible thing we could. We got Billy Zane. We got Dee Wallace. We got Misha Barton. Um, Felissa Rose, we got some people in it, you know, and and that and Anchor Bay picked it up. But if you're just going to go out and shoot your movie for no money and think some studio is going to pick it up, and, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen, mm-hmm. it does. But once maybe every 20, 25 years is really where something like that happens. And sometimes someone knows someone like you read about, oh, the guy that shot a whole movie on his iPhone and it went to can. Okay. But what's going on now? Other than that cute little human interest story and that 15 seconds of fame on the Drudge Report, <laughs> what's going on? You know, like what what happened here? So you you have to watch it carefully. So for anybody listening that wants to make movies, good script, have a marketing plan on how the person who's going to give you that money is going to get it back. How are you going to get them their money back? That's important. Uh, so as far as casting goes, like, again, you've uh, you've made uh, so you've directed uh, Camp Dread, Zombie Killers. Uh, you produced the fields, uh, Six Degrees of Hell. You've worked with some uh, some uh, really successful and well-known actors from Corey Feldman, Cloris Leachman, Tara Reid, uh, Misha Barton, Billy Zane, Eric Roberts, who is in Camp Dread. Um, these are like yeah, just as a as a as a as a movie fan. These are all names that for me are it's very impressive. So then so then my 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 immediate thought is you know. Um, how do you come to, to work with these people? How do you, how do you have access to them? How do you, how do they become part of your projects? I call them. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy enough. Huh? <laughs> That's I got them. Um, when we did the fields, the, the investors said, you're going to get me two celebrities to be in this movie. I'm not putting money into this movie, uh, to make your own little project. Mm-hmm. So the person I always wanted for my grandmother was Cloris Leachman. I, I just didn't think we'd get her. And then we got her. And, uh, you know, the script is what did it because Cloris said, when my agent brought me this script, how many roles am I getting that are of good, solid drama potential? She goes, I'm at that age now where I'm playing the foul mouth, crazy old grandma. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. And let's face it. There was beer fest, all these other films she's in, then raising hope where she has, you know, what Alzheimer's or some type of dementia that she comes in and out of. Um, this was a chance for her to play a solid dramatic role. And that's what did it. I mean, Cloris commands a pretty big quote and we got her for a fraction of that quote. Oh, wow. And, uh, Tara Reed, I wanted to work with her. Uh, I think I'll tell you what, 
Tara Reid is one of the best people you'll ever work with. And she gets, you know, some hits in the press and all that stuff. That girl showed up on time, professional, in the zone, and acted her ass off. Mm. And most of all, was sweet and kind to everybody on that set. She ate with the crew. She signed umpteen autographs all the time, posed for how many photos with crew <laughs> and cast, signed uh, one of the guys, uh, the, the Volkswagen Beetle that she drives in the movie, um, signed his dashboard, and, you know, one of the most giving, kind, and professional people. So anybody that hears that crap about her and they post those awful videos of her, it's all bull. Hmm. Yeah, okay, so she goes out, she has a good time once in a while. That girl is in the zone and professional. Um, Corey Feldman, guy stepped on my set, was fantastic, and he killed it in that movie. I wish we could have had him more. We paid for him for, for the time that we had. And he's proud of Six Degrees of Hell because I think he saw, yeah, it's a low-budget film, but again... Low budget doesn't mean you have to suck. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I made phone calls to the agents. Uh, I sent the scripts. And again, they responded to the material. So there it supports what I just told your listeners. Have a good script. That gets you through the door. Then from there, same thing with Eric Roberts. Eric said his wife told him. Now, Eric also gets the, oh, I'm Eric Roberts. I do 25 films a month. Okay. <laughs> but let me tell you something. Eric Roberts is fantastic in Camp Dread. Eric, did you see Camp Dread? Not yet, no. Watch it. Camp Dread is one of my favorites. Eric Roberts is a great villain and scumbag in that movie. <laughs> and he acted his heart out for us. And most of all, again, one of the finest, nicest people you will ever come across. A genuinely nice man. That's awesome. Uh, That's always is. great to hear. I mean, because as a fan, I love, I love Eric Roberts. So it's always nice to... To hear that, because you know, it seems like far too often you hear the uh, the opposite of it. This uh, this act, yeah. whatever. So that yeah. that's awesome to hear. And Daniel Harris, I can say the same exact thing. Professional, wonderful, and and the nice part is, here's the ultimate testament. I get to call these people personal friends now. Mm. You know, and that's because I want to stay in touch with them. I want to work with them again mm -hmm. because they're just really, really nice people, and they want to make good movies. So mm -hmm. Eric had told me, he said, "How did I?" Get Camp Dread. I went for Eric. Like I, I wanted Eric mm -hmm. for that role. And um, Eric said he came down for breakfast one morning, and his wife Eliza, who is a sweetheart, said, uh, "You need to read this." And she had the script printed, and it was sitting on the breakfast table. And he said, "What? Well, what's this?" She goes, "At the time, the film was called Dead TV." Okay. She said, "You got to read this." She goes, "It's got one hell of an ending." And he's he read it, and he loved it. And his agent called me and said, what do I got to do to get Eric in this movie? And uh, that's what we did. So, again, you start with a good script. You make the calls to the proper agencies. To give you an example, a reporter was interviewing me on the set of Six Degrees of Hell. And he said, what do you got coming up next? And I had Camp Dread coming up next. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I got this slasher movie. I said, but uh, I would only make it if I can get Felissa Rose. And the interviewer goes, Oh, I know Felissa Rose. I'm like, you do? He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, you want her phone number? And I'm like, no, no, you, that's not professional. You can do an email introduction to me with Felissa and we can take it from there. But I'm not just calling Felissa Rose on her cell phone out of the blue because that's what crazy people do. So he did do that. He set up an email interview um, Phyllis and I connected and we ended up working together and became business partners together. 
That's awesome. And she did a great job in, in Camp Dread. I mean, there was nobody else who could play that role. I wanted Felissa because of Sleepaway Camp. I wanted her to play a counselor in this movie. So um, that's how I get my actors. I call them. Mm-hmm. I call. I don't call them. I call their management. Mm-hmm. And I send a script, and they, they want to know, do you have money? Is the movie financed? They don't want to hear, well, if your client works on my movie or agrees, then I can go out and raise the financing. Right. Yeah, sometimes that works. Most of the time, agents don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. They want to hear that the financing is in place and that their client is getting paid. And that's business. Mm-hmm. That's the way it works. And it sounds like, too, uh, in particular with what you were talking about with Eric Roberts and Cloris Leachman, it sounds like there's really talented actors with name recognition who are who maybe there's there's producers who might be surprised how willing they they are to work if the material is there as you said my answer to that is a good actor always wants to work mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter it, it does come down to what theater teachers used to say and that is there are no small parts just small actors right so and that is true you know you you can get a bruce willis that will work for scale if the project is right. Now, granted, Bruce, everybody goes, well, Bruce Willis did, you know, Pulp Fiction for scale. Yeah, but at the same time, number one, the material was stellar, mm-hmm. but number two, it was the chance to work with Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Okay. It wasn't like Bruce Willis just goes out and takes every scale project that there is. I mean, Sylvester Stallone will tell you that. I mean, that's why he wasn't in the one Expendables movie because Willis wants a big fat paycheck. Now, to be fair, Willis is like, look, this is a paycheck movie. This isn't cinema. This is a paycheck movie. So I don't walk in the man's shoes and I would like to work with him one day. So I don't want to piss him off if he ever listens to this. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can get good actors that will work for you if the material is good. And that's what it comes down to. If they see you have your act together and they really want to work, well, then they'll do it. That's awesome. What are your thoughts on uh, well, actually, let me first ask this. Uh, did you go to film school? And uh, what are your thoughts in general about film school and in terms of becoming <laughs> a filmmaker? All right. Uh, yeah, I went to film school for a semester before I got kicked out. <laughs> I went to uh, I went to Penn State and I flunked right out. I flunked out. I partied too much and I was chasing the cheerleader down the hall. That's what's <laughs> going on there. Um, but what a ride. <laughs> However, I failed promptly out of film school. So, um, look, I, I never want to discourage anybody from getting an education. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a dangerous road that, that you have to walk here. Uh, you either have the talent or you don't. Sitting for hours in film school, reviewing movies, uh, going out with a camera and making your little project or your thesis, you got to have talent. Mm-hmm. You really do. You, no one can teach you talent. No one can teach you art. You either have it in you or you don't. And film school can maybe help you learn things about the medium that maybe you didn't know, maybe alleviate some of the ignorance to previous films that something may inspire you. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe whether it's Full sale or it's any of these kind of places, um, I, I, I don't believe that they can make you a filmmaker. Now, granted, USC... And all of those places, you, you got to admit, 
the people that have come out of there pretty pretty talented motherfuckers okay <laughs> and uh they all network with each other you know like you know bob zemeckis had a roommate who was i forget who his room but they all knew each other mm-hmm. you know what i mean but they were all talented at the same time so that's the difference um we see like this is pretty cool like if you look there like felissa rose is calling me <laughs> we were just talking about her that's awesome so you know it's it's one of those things where no one, no one, I would never discourage anybody from getting an education, but I don't believe that film school can teach you to be a great director or a great writer. You, you have those things that are built in you. That's what I believe. Um, otherwise, you know, there are plenty of people that like, for example, I'll give you an example. And you look this guy up when I'm done. Uh, his name is Joe Rafa. Joe Rafa is the director of Six Degrees of Hell. He directed that when he just turned 21. The wow. kid was barely legal to have a beer on set. <laughs> he um, dropped out of Temple Film School, took the balance of his tuition, and made a brilliant uh, teenage drama called You'll Know My Name. And I think I even have a copy of it sitting here for inspiration. That's it right there. Okay. The film is called You'll Know My Name. He shot it for $35,000. Um, Joe is one of the most gifted filmmakers I have ever met. I wrote a, an article about him, a blog. Um, I think you'll know my name is one of the most important teenage movies made since, you know, rebel without a cause, uh, the blackboard jungle. I I think what Joe Rafa crafted was a classic film about a know nothing generation. I think what he wrote is a damning indictment of the millennial generation. Mm. And um, he did that without film school because he's talented. Mm-hmm. Joe Raff is a talented motherfucker. <laughs> I'm writing that. I'm writing that down right now. I'm going to check that out. You'll know my name. Uh, so you you started a class of '85, which, as best as I could tell, is a production company. Is that correct? That's my production company, named after my senior class. So tell me about how that uh, how that got going, and ultimately what kind of work you guys are doing. Okay. Well, I mean, we got it going right after the fields. Uh, the Fields Production Company was Mr. Big LLC, which was named after uh, my best friend who had just died of cancer. Mm. So we named it after him as a tribute because he was the one who said, well, you got that Cornfield movie, don't you? You should do that. He never <laughs> lived to, to see it get made, but it's a shame. 39 and died of stomach cancer. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that sucks. Um, on top of it, then I formed Class of 85. I've always been very proud of the people that I graduated with, the Class of 85 from Stroudsburg High School. Uh, very proud of those people and was very proud to be a part of that class. I also am very proud as a graduate of Stroudsburg High School. I really feel I got an excellent education from my teachers there. I feel very, very blessed and lucky to have received the education that I did from Stroudsburg High School. And uh, so if you can ever make that a little blurb out of this, I would like <laughs> your audience to know that because a good education is highly important. And um so I, I named it after that. We made Six Degrees of Hell under that name, and we went from there. And uh, I'm very proud of it. That's a, now uh, again, maybe, sort of. Uh, I almost feel like I'm going back to my uh, my question about, say, a young director who's looking to get started. Uh, if somebody wants to start a, a production company, let's say they let's say they're ambitious, they love movies, um, and, and you know maybe they've got uh, a, a certain amount of a business savvy, um, but they don't. They don't quite know how to get started. What might be a, an important first step for somebody who wants to get going with a production company? Well, have some material. That's one. And start networking mm-hmm. immediately. Find a good director of photography. Find a good sound crew. 
Find somebody that has a grip and electric truck or has access to that equipment. Start networking and putting your world together. You're not going to get it with, I have a script and I want you to do my movie. That's not going to happen. Okay, I can't tell you that enough. It is not my job, unlike these kids' parents, to tell them that they are special. No one gives a shit about you, okay? <laughs> no one cares, and you're not as special as your mommy and daddy and elementary teachers told you you were. Some of you will not become filmmakers because it's just not in the cards, or you're not ambitious enough. You have to have ambition. It's what Winston Churchill said, never, never, never give up. That's it. Mm. And if you have a thin skin and you want to be told you're special and that, you know, you I had one kid one time approach me <laughs> and say he had the next Star Wars. And I looked right at him without even reading the script. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. That's because, well, my mom read it. Oh, great. Because your mom's such an objective critic. Right. <laughs> and your mom made how many movies? Oh, that's right. Um. So you, you have to look at it that way. And I know what I sound like, but I don't care. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody helped me get to where I am. I don't have a rich daddy. I don't have anybody that was well-connected in the film industry. I didn't have anybody hand my script to a producer or a movie star, and they gave me my break. I didn't get any of that. That's why I'm almost 50 doing this, mm. okay? I didn't get the break that some got. Like, everybody says, oh, Steven Spielberg just walked onto Universal's lot, and he set up in an abandoned trailer, and he was, like, 20 years old, and that's how he got the job. No, that's not it at all. What nobody bothers to look into is that Spielberg's parents had some pretty good money, mm -hmm. okay? And they invested very heavily into their little boy, okay? And there were some connections that were made, okay? And I'm not taking away from Spielberg because, let's face it, the man totally redefined cinema the way that it is. Mm -hmm. So um, can I do one thing right here? Absolutely. I, just hang on one second. Um, Felissa? Uh, yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm still in the interview. I'm sorry about that. I'm not blowing you off. Do you want to say hi real quick? I would love to. Hello, Felissa. How you doing? My name is Martin Lestraps. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm doing great. <laughs> it's a pleasure to talk to you. Aw, uh, yay! <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I call you right after this is over? Absolutely. All righty. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was a pleasant surprise. Felissa, Felissa is a trip. Have you, have you ever interviewed her? No, I haven't. You, you should. <laughs> it's an experience. I would love to. Well, I will. I, I will. Uh, I'll see if I can beg a, a favor from you when we're done here then. Sure. So um, you were you were asking about before uh, about getting out there and, and doing it. Mm -hmm. So as, as a message to young people or anybody getting into this, look, it doesn't have to be young. I think what um, who was it? Uh, oh, my God. Any other time I know who he is. Uh, the, the director of Popeye, uh, the, the director of Pedipo uh oh my God, the player. <laughs> I had it too. No, I'm losing it. Oh my God, I feel I feel stupid. Robert Altman. Yeah. Um, Robert Altman started at like I think in his 40s. Oh, I had no idea. Going into film, yeah, I, I, he wasn't young. So um, although people say 40s is young, I, I like to consider I'm still young. <laughs> but. Um, you know, you, you have to network. You have to get good people behind you. That's what John Carpenter did. If you want to know how to make movies or learn how to do it, study how Jaws was made. Study how they did it. Every mistake, every problem, every issue that they had on set, you will learn how to make movies just from learning how they made Jaws. Devour every documentary. 
read every book, including probably one of the best, Edith Blake's The Making of the Movie Jaws. But surround yourself with good people. That's what Joe Raffa did with You'll Know My Name. Charlie Anderson was his director of photography. I want to use Charlie for the rest of my life. Mm. Charlie will win an Oscar one day for director of photography. Not only is he smart, he's very well balanced, stays away from the party scene, and he gets his work done, and he is an artist. That's also the difference. So you surround yourself with good people who work hard, and that is some of the best advice that I can give. That's what John Carpenter did. Mm -hmm. John's best movies were when he worked with the same people, Dean Cundy, okay? Um, he brought in all the same editors, Deborah Hill. He brought in all the same actors, whether it was Jamie Lee Curtis, Tommy Atkins, um, all these people. He was smart, and he surrounded himself with good people. That's the best advice I can give. That's awesome, and that's great advice. Uh, you recently joined, uh, I don't know if I'm don't pronouncing know. this right, Carolico Pictures? Carolco, yep, Carolico. the same Carolco that did the Rambo movies, um, Terminator 2 and 3, or th Terminator 2, I should say. Mario went on to do Terminator 3. Um, but all those, yeah, Basic Instinct, yep. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you're the, the head of independent genre development, which sounds terrifically impressive. Uh, <laughs> so what, what, all, what, what, what does that role uh, entail? Sure. What, what it entails, really, Martin, is just um, what it comes down to is, is you know, you're out there, you're, you're connecting with a lot of genre directors and producers and writers, and you're trying to bring them all together. I'm not the smartest man in the room, but I like to get the smartest people in the room. Yeah. I can yeah. do that. I'm very good at getting the smartest people in the room. And um, that's what I want to do with the independent genre division. I want to bring out the best and brightest of what's going on, whether it's Ed Sanchez, the Saska twins, John Carpenter, Adrian Barbeau, uh, Michael, uh, Anthony Michael Hall, whoever it may be. I want to get them involved and, and get them working together and, and working on whether it's their projects or they come on and produce. Uh, I eventually want to work with Eli Roth, um, James Colin Brasek. I, I want to get all those people together. And that's what we're doing. That's awesome. Now, is it, uh, is, is it, how much does it affect your, um, your, your time and overall ability to also engage in filmmaking, this new role of yours? Really, it's I have a non-exclusive agreement with Carol Co., mm -hmm. which is what I really like. Uh, I'm going to be doing Death House coming up in September, and I feel really good about that because I can do these things and still do my job at Carol Co. Actually, I want I to ask you about Death House because I, I was uh, I was reading about that on uh, on IMDb, and uh, it's it's in pre-production right now, as far as I yes. read. Now, the the names that I read attached to it, especially as a as a horror fan. Were, uh, were, were very exciting. Uh, in particular, I saw Robert England is rumored, yeah. according to... He's, he's more than rumored. I've, I've been trying to change that. Okay. Uh, Robert England is attached to it. We have wow. an LOI from him. And uh, he, I, he, I think he's read the new script. Of course, uh, you know, any of these things can change. But England is a very generous man and a very nice man who wants to be a part of this. And um, he will not be playing Freddy Krueger. <laughs> He'll be playing an entirely different role that I yeah. wrote for him. And, uh, but I can safely say that, yes, Robert Englund is attached to death. That's, just know there, there's an eight-year-old version of myself right now who thinks that's like the coolest thing he's ever heard. Uh, that Robert Englund's going to be... My girlfriend is a huge Robert Englund fan, and she wants to meet him badly. Uh, I also saw that uh, uh, Michael Berriman is going to be in there. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've never met him, but um, I, he's, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he... My godfather's an actor, and he was in... Uh, the Hills Have Eyes Part Two, which I believe was 1984. Uh, yeah, it was right around there. And um, 
and so and so when I saw that name, I immediately made a uh, made that he was one of the cannibals, I believe, in the the Hills Have Eyes, uh, part two. That movie by I that that's that's a movie I haven't. I don't think I've seen it recently. Um, oh, now I'm now I'm drawing a blank on a big director. I can't believe I drew a blank on Robert Alt. <laughs> uh, Wes Craven. I couldn't I couldn't think of it. Wes Craven's name for a second. Um, the, the 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 Hills Have Eyes part two. Is Michael Berryman in particular uh, played a, a cannibal who uh, I was probably, again I was probably like seven or eight years old who terrified me and I, and I was still oh, yeah. at, at a young age you know watching movies where. You know, the I didn't I didn't think of these people as actors. I, I I didn't think of these as stories being created. You may as well have told me I was watching the news, and I couldn't even I couldn't even go upstairs to go to bed because if it was too dark, I thought Michael Berryman might be <laughs> in the hallway. But feel free. You know, to- he used to be he used to be a teacher. Did he really? He was a high school teacher. I think it was English. I I had no idea. Well, that's that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Feel free to to, to let him know that there's a. There's a 37 year old man who can, yeah, has trouble getting to sleep sometimes. Well, that's of- why in Weird Science at the end, when um, he played one of the mutants in Weird Science at the end, the the Road Warrior kind of mutants that the one guy from Road Warrior was in, uh-huh. and uh, he says to Anthony Michael Hall, and he goes, "I I would appreciate you wouldn't say anything about this. I wouldn't want to lose my teaching job." Well, <laughs> that's the inside joke. He really was a teacher. That's so funny. Until you because I can totally see him in Weird Science, but I never I. Uh, as silly as it sounds, I didn't realize that was him, but I can totally see that scene in that in that character. How funny! I had no idea about that. Yeah, uh, that's oh, Danny Trejo. I saw is also in the movie. Yep, which yep. is will be in it. Super cool, and uh, and you know, it, it, I it, well, I guess I guess I, I, I sort of already asked you about this, but in terms of getting the these really cool actors, just just kind of the same deal, having good material, connecting with their uh, their agents and management. Yes. Um... Overall, this one is a little different because the project has been gestating since I think around 2010. Oh, okay. So they all, a lot of them came on board uh, about five years ago. And then the script went through a couple revisions and it, it wasn't really catching anybody on fire. And so then they came to me and asked me if I would take a pass. And I'm not disparaging any of the previous versions. I'm just, it's the way the business goes. They came to me. I wrote a version that seemed to everybody liked. And um, so then it kind of caught wind again, and now we're going into production. Well, that's awesome. Well, listen, uh, you've been terribly generous with your time, so I'll go ahead and wrap up. Uh, I know you have to call our, our mutual friend, uh, Felissa Rose. You have to go ahead and uh, <laughs> give her a call. I'm, I'm teasing, of course, but uh, uh, I, I spoke to her for about five seconds, so I think she's my friend now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before we go, uh, if anybody wants to get in contact with you just to find out what you're up to or if somebody wants to work with you, what uh, what's what's the, the, the best way for somebody to find you? I think the best way is... I'm- the only social media that I maintain other than my IMDB is my Twitter account. Okay. And um, I, I think that's just the best way uh, for people to reach out. Uh, you know, if you're crazy, please don't reach out. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't read scripts unsolicited. Don't just send me a script. I've had people emailing me scripts. I don't read them. I'm not getting into lawsuits. <laughs> I don't read them. So you can come back one day and say, oh, you stole my idea. Yeah. I don't read them. If if I didn't ask for it or it doesn't come with a submission form, I delete it. Yeah, it's okay. gone. I don't even open it. That sounds uh, like a good policy. It's a really good policy, and I am not being a dick about it. Mm-hmm. You have to do that because there are people that will go, "Oh, you had an element of my movie in there." Well, let's face it. You could 
I, I could easily say that, you know, somebody stole my ideas for Jurassic World or something, you mm-hmm. know, which they didn't. I'm yeah. just putting out, you, there's, the spectrum is so wide, you just throw enough crap against the wall, something will stick. Mm-hmm. So, um, but Twitter is the best way to, to get a hold of me. Okay. Well, uh, Harrison, it's been a, a genuine pleasure chatting with you. Uh, Thank I know you're a busy really dude. Nice but, talking with you, too. Uh, I hope boy, you know, somewhere down the road to do the show again. I'd love to talk to you again. Yeah, absolutely. You just tell me when. It was a real pleasure. You have a great show. Uh, you're an excellent host, and uh, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, thanks again, Harrison. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you down the road. You bet. Now I'll also connect you with Felissa Rose. I very much appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take it easy, brother. You got it. Take care now. Well, there you have it. Mr. Harrison Smith. And by the way, dude, Felissa Rose called in? How cool was that? I mean, obviously, it was an accident. She had no idea she was she was calling into the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. But, you know, let the record show that uh, that uh, Miss Felissa Rose called in, uh, into my podcast and said hello. So that was very cool. And, uh, you know, just in case you're not aware, Felissa, she's She's probably most famous for appearing in the cult film Sleepaway Camp from 1983. Uh, She appeared in that film when she was 13 years old, which is, you know, a terribly impressive feat. It's 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 uh, it's difficult to get into a movie at all, let alone when uh, when you're a kid like that. And to to have a film that, you know, uh, so many years later, people still remember the film and they remember her character. So so that was very cool. And of course, the obvious question you must be thinking is, Will Felissa Rose one day be interviewed on the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour? Well, you're just going to have to stay tuned to find out, won't you, friend? Now, if you remember, earlier in the podcast, I told you that Harrison's first film, which he was the writer and producer on, was a film called The Fields. So really quickly, before I wrap up episode 89, I just want to share with you the official trailer for The Fields. So here you go. Jesus Christ Almighty, a mouse ran up my nighty, bit my rope, made me jump. Well, I know it doesn't seem like it all the time, but I love your mother, and I love you. It wasn't supposed to be like this. He always had that temper. He says you're running with that Andy from Jules gas station. Demanding Charles Manson never be eligible for parole. What's your name, little boy? Pappy, do you think that Charles Manson will ever get out of prison? Nope. Stay out of the cornfield. Son, he needs us. What was that? Hold on! 
good creepy stuff there, right? Absolutely apropos for Halloween month. Now, if you're not already subscribed to the Marginless Strap Show podcast hour on iTunes, I highly recommend you do it because it's free and it's convenient because every week a new episode drops off in your iTunes list and you never, ever have to think about it. It's my gift to you. It's like magic. You just wake up uh, on a Monday and there it is, a new episode, just like today with my guest, Harrison Smith. Uh, If you're not an iTunes listener, because not everybody listens to their podcasts on iTunes, you can also catch the show on Stitcher Radio, which you can find at Stitcher.com. There's also the Stitcher app, so, you know, it's your choice. Either way, it's also free. Just go to Stitcher Radio, uh, look up my show. You can just look up my name if you like. You can just punch in my last name with straps. And uh, as best as I can tell, I'm the only human in the whole history of the world with the last nameless traps who host a podcast, so you shouldn't have any trouble finding it. And if neither of those options do it for you, then there's always the old-fashioned way, and that's you can listen to the show on the official website of this podcast, martinlessdrapsshow.com. All 89 episodes are available, and beginning next week, all 90 episodes will be available. Speaking of episode 90, uh, what am I doing for episode 90? I already told you that it's, uh, it's Halloween month, and that uh, the next four episodes, well, actually, after today, the next three episodes, will be in some form or fashion couched in the theme of Halloween and horror and spookiness. So what am I going to do for episode 90? Well, I know what I'm going to do, but you don't. And uh, similar to whether or not I will one day chat with Felissa Rose, you're just going to have to tune in to find out. But rest assured, episode 90 will be an epic episode, and you won't be disappointed. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and wrap up now. Uh, I want to say thanks again to my guest, Harrison Smith, who is very cool. He's an absolute gentleman, very funny, very smart. And I very much look forward to having him on the show once again. And I want to thank all of you for for checking out the show and listening. And I I hope you enjoyed it. For those of you who who are listening for the first time because you're fans of Harrison Smith, so you wanted to check out what was going on, I hope you enjoyed yourself. And I invite you to stick around. Go backwards. Listen to some of the previous episodes. If you enjoyed this, my suspicion is that you will enjoy the other episodes I've done. And I inv- I also invite you to, to hang out and stay tuned uh, for next week and future episodes. And I hope you stick around and become a, a regular listener. I will do my very best to entertain your ear holes. All right, gang, that's going to do it for episode 89. And until next time, I will see you on the other side.